Well, once again, welcome. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to that passage. If you uh, are using your worship folder, it's there printed for you. But if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we have been making our way through this letter of 1 Peter, this ancient letter that was written by one of the apostles of Jesus to a group of people who felt very out of place in the world. They decided to to believe and to follow this story, this crazy story of Jesus of Nazareth, and all of a sudden it put them out of sorts and out of the rhythms of their neighbors. It, it, It changed the way that they saw the world. It changed the way they saw suffering. It changed the way they saw blessing. It changed the way that they saw the purpose of their very lives, and it made them strange. And so each week we've looked and we've reflected with First Peter, with Peter, I'm sorry, not First Peter, we've reflected with Peter about each kind of different kind of strangeness, the different ways that God makes us a little bit different, that uses us in a little bit different way to change the world. And so uh, today what we're gonna talk about is this strange and unique form of freedom that the people who follow King Jesus find. So I invite you to join with me in our prayer as we get started. Father, I pray that as we come to this text, Lord, as we wrestle to try and understand what somebody who who lived and worked 2,000 years ago meant, as we try to to fill our mind with the vision of, of wholeness and healing that he envisioned, God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, Lord, that you would soften uh, our hearts, that you would allow our hearts to receive the goodness that you have offered. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, growing up, I probably am like a lot of you. The struggle for freedom was was one of the narratives that was etched into the, the stories, into this concept of, of who I was. And at a very early age, I got a chance to try to defend that freedom. You see, one day I was probably in like first grade-ish age. Uh, my aunt came home from college and she brought with her a, a, a very kind or seemingly kind uh, Englishman, a man from lived just outside of London, but had come to America to to go to school, and and he was sitting there in my living room on Skyview Drive as the family, you know, was kind of politely entertaining uh, my mother's sister's boyfriend. Now I should tell you. Uh, that when I was about this age, I was kind of enamored with the stories of the Revolutionary War, right? This was long before Hamilton made such an obsession a cool thing, okay? This was, this was not a normal thing for a first grader, but I was captured by it, right? I, I, I remember sitting um, in front of our, our stereo at home, right, and putting in the cassette tapes to these radio dramas that, that reenacted these stories of, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware or, um, or Paul Revere's midnight ride, right, to, to alert the countryside that the British are coming, the British are coming, the British are coming. And here in my very living room sat one of Her Majesty the Queen's loyal subjects. I was a little bit skeptical, 
Who knows what kind of, you know, of Prince George's tyrannies he may harbor sympathies with. And so in my little first grade mind, I decided to let him know what kind of house he was in, that this was a house that stood for freedom. And so I put on the most uh, encouraging song to set the mood, right? I I found the, the Lee Greenwood cassette tape with God Bless the USA. I ran to my room and I clutched my Star Spangled Banner, right? And I paraded in front of the living room, waving the the American flag in his face because that's a flag that stands for freedom. And they can't take that away. I was proud to be an American, right? See, I was raised with this imprint of freedom in my mind, a a vision of freedom that no king could rule over me, that no uh, outside oppressor could have a, a force over me because I was an American. And anyone who tried to take away my freedom would feel my wrath. But it's not just our, can I say, somewhat misplaced nationalism that leads us to that, it's the stories that we tell, right? Think of a Disney movie, think of an old cowboy Western, right? Think of, of any action hero that you know of, and I would almost bet that the storyline is somehow their heroic quest to shake off those people who would oppress them, to shake off their oppressors and to reclaim their individual autonomy, their freedom. And in that way, we're a lot like these folks that read Peter's letter for the first time. You see, they didn't have Clint Eastwood, but they had a story of Moses who went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, right? They didn't have Captain America, but they had David, who as a little boy trusted in God with such fervency that he was able to bring down the giant Goliath. They didn't have Esther, Right, I'm sorry, they had Esther. They didn't have Rosa Parks or Harriet Tubman or or Martin Luther King to fill their minds with a vision of freedom. But these were folks who, just like you, were every bit convinced that their freedom was important, that their freedom needed to be protected. They had a little leg up on you because they believed that their freedom was very near and dear to the heart of God. Even as they opened the letter from Peter, I imagine that some of them had been enraptured in their youth of the story that we now read in the book of Acts, of Peter and the disciples after they had been arrested by the authorities and breaking free from prison, went back to preaching in the synagogue because they said, we must obey God rather than men. And so you can imagine their confusion as their hero of freedom tells them things like, honor the emperor, like the emperor who used Christians as tiki torches at his parties, the emperor who proclaimed himself to be a divine God, the emperor who, who, who seemed to be a trendsetter for all matter of, of sexual deviancy. When their hero of freedom said, be subject to your masters, the kinds of masters who would try to obligate their servants and their slaves to lead in the household pagan rituals to offer sacrifices to false gods. And Peter says to be subject to submit to those people, 
they're as concerned as you or I are. What is it that Peter is saying? But instead of rejecting what Peter has to say at the out front, what I hope we can do is we can be the kind of people who hear him out, the kind of people who listen to what it is that he is trying to tell us. Because while we assume that freedom means that we are free to do whatever we want, when we assume that, that freedom means that we answer to no man, Peter has a very strange concept of freedom. The freedom that frees us to submit. So I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a look really at, at three different things. One is we're gonna just name this scandalous proposal that Peter says, why it makes so little sense to us, but why it makes so much sense to Peter. So we're gonna list our scandalous proposal or Peter's scandalous proposer. We're gonna look at some of those objections that we feel on a gut level as we hear them. And then third, we're gonna look at three different ways that Peter seems to think, and I believe the spirit of God with him seems to think that our submitting to authorities brings the good of the world. So first, this scandalous proposal by Peter. I'm gonna put it like this. And Peter seems to think that because Jesus has set us free from the powers of this world, we are free to submit to those who have power. Because Jesus has set us free from the powers of this world, we are free to submit to those who have powers. Jesus has set us free. You hear him in this passage talking about Jesus in this great act of sacrifice as Jesus goes to the cross, as Jesus suffers and as Jesus dies. And the story, this strange story, this strange gospel that Peter has proclaimed to us tells us that that means that Jesus has set us free from the powers of sin and death. And what does that mean? Well, it means that one, we have uh, the freedom to not sin, a freedom that we did not used to have. But secondly, Jesus conquering death frees us from the fears that come with sin. You see, when the Bible thinks about Jesus, it, in fact, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews lists Jesus' job as this, right? That he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Because that's how tyrants work the fear of death, the fear of pain, the fear of struggle, the fear that, that we uh, will be ruled over triumph, the fear that they can take our life is the way that tyrants, whether they are slave masters or whether they are governors or whether they are, uh, whether they are kings themselves, the way they rule, the way they operate is that they have control over your physical body. But to Christians, to Christians who believe in this story of Jesus, that there is a life to come, that the story of Jesus where the powers of this world, no matter how big and no matter how strong you are, you will answer to the king of kings one day. To the story of, to Christians, when the governor threatens to beat their body, they say, but you cannot beat my soul. When the slave master says, I will take your life, the slave can say, but to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, the story of Jesus cuts off the tyranny at its source. 
What power does a tyrant have over those who hold no fear of death? But Jesus, through Peter here, tells us that he wants to use that freedom, that freedom that we answer to know king, that freedom that we answer to know employer or ruler or landlord, and he says to use it for a very particular purpose. He says, how are they to use such a freedom? Not as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God which verse 13 tells us means to live as a servant of God is to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's an emperor or governor. He tells us that to follow Jesus, to live as a servant of God is to be subject to your masters with all respect. Why does he say that? How can he say that? Because the master the human master, right? Whether that's a king or whether that's an employer or a boss or whether that is a slave master himself holds no power over you. So you are not answering to him as master but to God as master. Peter's scandalous proposal is is that because Jesus has set us free, now we are free to submit ourselves to them, to cooperate with them in their good and to suffer from them their evil. Y'all ready for some objections? If you're like me, the, uh, the, when I start talking about submitting to, to evil rulers, to, to those who wield their power for the oppression of others, and then you start talking about submitting to them, you, if you're like me, you're about to have a stomach ulcer, right? Your brain is about to hemorrhage. And you have some good reasons, some good objections to that. And you have some bad ones. And so as we're wrestling with Peter, we need to ask our questions of the text, even as he asks us questions. And so I'm gonna say here, you, you first have a good objection to, to the way that Peter has phrased this. You have a good objection because you know your history and you know your Bible. You know that, that what Peter says here has been abused and has been used. I can't tell you the kind of, you know, as a preacher, you always stand up here and, and you're afraid that people are gonna hear you saying things that you're not saying or, or you're afraid that people are going to misinterpret what you are, are trying to encourage. And it is not lost on me that I stand up here, right, as a, a, a man who... Uh, is white, right, as a man who is a man, right, as a man who uh, interprets the Bible and that there have been hundreds and thousands of folks like me who love this passage from Peter. And they love it because they can use it to beat their slaves into submission. They loved it because they could silence the folks like they could attempt to silence the folks like Martin Luther King, right? They loved it because they, it allowed them the opportunity to silence those into oppression from physical, emotional, sexual, or spiritual tyranny. And so you have a lot of concerns because as you've read the Bible, you, like the people of Israel, know that that's not the heart of God. In fact, there's this, uh, if you go, um, you can look this up, this 
slave Bible, right? That, that those folks who would use this passage to such ends used. And what's fascinating about the Bible, the selection of, of scriptures that they chose for their slaves is that uh, they went through and they cut out all the things in the Bible that they thought might give the slaves the idea that they could advance freedom. Right? They cut out all the parts that kind of muddied the waters and they, they kept admonitions like this from First Peter, but they cut out the story of Moses freeing the slaves. They taught of Joseph going into bondage, right? but they never preached of them coming out of bondage. In fact, in order to sustain the argument that the Bible condones slavery, that the Bible condones the mistreatment of others, they had to cut out 90% of the Old Testament. 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. They had to cut out the vast majority of the scriptures because despite what others wanna tell you about the Bible, the argument that the Bible teaches and condones slavery, while there's some good hard questions to ask, it simply cannot be maintained. And so you hear from First Peter and you go, whoa, 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 Peter, there must be more to the story. And you're exactly right. Remember, Peter is writing what he thinks his freedom-minded folks need to hear. He's telling one angle of the story. He's not building a, a comprehensive argument on slavery. He's not building a comprehensive argument on our role in relationship to government. But what he is saying is, is that you have a dangerous impulse in you. And that dangerous impulse is the bad objection that I wanna talk about. Is because you have ingrained in you the same thing that's ingrained in me, the assumption the assumption that my freedom from powers means that I'm free from suffering. That the God who has freed me would not want me to live in this world in which there are people who will hate me, who will abuse me, who will take advantage of me. We want to assume that every misdeed that's done to us ought to be met with our loudest voice and our cry of anger. And it's a bad assumption for two obvious reasons. One is, is scriptural, is that the, a servant's never greater than his master. If your freedom in Christ frees you from all suffering, well then the freedom that Christ had didn't free him from suffering. The passage makes that clear. But the second is, is practical. Right, when we wanna look at the scriptures and say, Jesus has freed us, he has set free the prisoners, he has loosed the bonds of oppression, and therefore, I do not experience this anymore. In effect, what we're doing is we're blaming the victim. The person who will inevitably and always be a victim of injustice, because no matter what laws you pass, and no matter how far you go, victimization, Abuse, tyranny will find its way. There will always be people who are suffering until King Jesus makes his return. And what Peter wants those people to understand, those people who have no opportunity for freedom, those people who have no opportunity to escape is that their suffering is dignified, that their suffering has a purpose. And so to our objections, I, I hear Peter telling us 
the, the, the question here. To your first objection, he says, no, the point is not to silence any initiatives towards freedom. The point is not to stop a, a, a slave from seeking freedom. The point is to be very cautious. If you've uh, heard of Esau Macaulay, he's a uh, professor at Wheaton College, and he's recently this year published a book called Reading While Black. And it's a phenomenal book, if you're, especially if you're into the uh, hermeneutics, which if you don't know what that word is, just ignore that I'm talking right now. Uh, but it's very helpful because he, he, he's writing and he develops his thesis much more than I have time to today. But what he says is when we read a, a passage like this from First Peter, a passage that teach us is, teaches us how to submit to those who would lord over us is that we don't read it in such a way that says, therefore, liberation's not possible. We ought not read this in a way that says, therefore, liberation is, is not something for you to speak on. These kinds of passages are not meant to be used in the way the slaveholders use them to silence objections. Instead, he says, we have to read these in the context of God's whole movement. Through the pages, the 90% of the Old Testament and the 50% of the New Testament that are dripping to tell us that speaking truth to power, as Moses did, is a Christian vocation. That defending the defenseless, as Jesus did, is a Christian vocation. That breaking the bonds of earthly dominions is a Christian vocation. That is, it's a thing that Christians ought to do. But what Peter's encouragement to us is, is, but suffering injustice, that also is a Christian vocation. And while you struggle for freedom and while you struggle for rightness, know that you are not a stranger to suffering. You see, Peter is putting the emphasis on what people like us need to hear, the people who think that we ought never to experience hardship. But what he is not allowing for and what he is not saying is, is that we ought to sit in silence. In fact, I would say if you are a person here today, right, who is experiencing a abuse, a harassment, prejudice, Right, If the authorities, the people who have power over you, your landlords, your boss, your government officials, right, the police, if they are treating you unjustly, I think the scriptures here tell us a number of things. It tells us, I think, to speak up. To speak up to your oppressor and to speak up to those who have power over your oppressor. Why else would the slave owners uh, beat his servant for doing good if the servant has not already told him, I will not cooperate with what you want me to do. I think Peter want, is, not, is telling us that if you are experiencing abuse or marginalization is to seek refuge, to find safety, right? Because it is from that place of safety that you can ask, that you can challenge, that you can work towards the justice which God has given you. But he's also telling us to question your heart. I recently reread uh, re Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, which if you've not read that, read that way before you read Esau's book. Um, and in it, though, one of his steps, his steps towards justice, right, that he lays out is this curious step where he argues that 
that the people who have experienced uh, persecution, the black community in his narrative, right, is to go through this step of purifying themselves. This step when they, they question whether it is their job and whether it is their calling to enact their, their nonviolent confrontation with the powers that be. He asked them to test their motives and if they're able to suffer as Jesus suffered. Right, this step of purification is essential because otherwise you will simply ostracize, you will simply do away with those who do you harm rather than inviting them into the beloved community. And that's the genius of his heart and his work. Peter tells us that if you are experiencing hardship, if you're experiencing abuse, if you're experiencing a, a, a time in a relationship when someone seeks to use their power over you, that you can, as Jesus did in verse 23, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Speak for freedom. Seek your freedom. But if the freedom does not come, entrust that there is a God who says that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Okay, lastly, why? Why in this strange story of God's world, why would Peter tell these people to submit to authorities, to submit to those who had power over for them, and I'm gonna briefly, as quickly as I can, tell you three reasons that I see here in Peter's letter. Three long-term goods that come from this kind of relationship with our government, this kind of relationship with our employer, this kind of relationship with our police. And the first is that it is for the good of the one who submits. Peter here takes up the worst case scenario, right? A servant or bond servant or, or perhaps your translation says slave, right? It's a different kind of slavery than the chattel slavery of the American South, but the, the premise of slavery is still slavery, right? Even in the worst case scenario, when you have refused to obey an unjust order from those who hold power over you and they abuse you, they threaten your life and they threaten your harm. Worst case scenario, two times in this text, in verse 19 and in verse 21, he says that that is a thing of grace. Verse 19, it is a gracious thing to endure those sorrows. In verse 21, to do good, and to, if you do good and you suffer for it, then that is a, again, gracious thing. It's a means by which God wants to move and bring you good. How can that be? How can suffering under incompetent and unjust people bring you good? He says, because it allows you to experience life with a risen Christ. Last night, my family um, broke into this plate of Costco brownies that were full of gluten, which my celiac disease will not allow me to consume, Right? And the running joke in our family is, is that they eat the bite of this brownie and they go, oh, this is terrible. You wouldn't want it anyway, Dad, right? But it doesn't really matter because even if they told me, oh, this is so good, these brownies are to die for, it has little effect on me because I've not experienced the sweetness of those brownies. 
It would be far worse if I had one bite of the brownie and could eat no more, but the fact that I've never tasted that brownie means that it's pure theoretical knowledge. Peter tells us is that when you suffer unjustly, when you suffer for doing good, you will experience the love of Jesus in a whole new way because you will experience the way that he gave up his freedom for you. When you use your freedom for the good of your oppressor, you will experience a Jesus who gave up his freedom to free you for that good. So it's good for the one who submits. It's good for the one who holds power. In verse 15, when he's talking about government, right? He says that, that by doing good, right? By cooperating with the governors, <clears throat> that you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, which tells us about two verses earlier in agreement uh, that when he says, when they speak against you as evildoers, that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. See, while we wonder when God is going to come and bring us justice, one of the things that he tells us, one of the reasons he tells us is that he is waiting to bring more into his fold. He is seeking out more people to show his grace to. And so we, while we are uh, uh, taken advantage of, while we suffer the the slights and the, the misdeeds of those who have power over us, are seeking their good gives them a chance to know the king who rules on their behalf, the king who gives pardon to those who practice injustice. It can be like the prisoner, you remember that story in Acts when Paul and Silas are flogged and beaten and thrown into jail and God delivers them by an earthquake as they sing songs of hymns of of thanks to God And, and because of their response to suffering, their jailer came to know the Lord. It's good for the one who submits and it's good for the one who holds the power, but lastly, it's good for the world. See, some of you are, are libertarians, right? And government's a dirty word. Some of you don't like to, 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 to give credence to the fact that, that a ruler, a, a governor of a different stripe than you, right, who has the wrong letter after their name can in fact do good. But this text alludes us to the fact that, that, that God intends for those who have power, he intends and he calls them and he will hold them accountable to doing good. It was true of Pharaoh, it was true in the nation of Israel, it was true of Assyria and Babylon who oppressed them and it was true of Rome itself that is evil and as far from God as they may be, they have a calling to do what is good. Verse 14, he says that they are sent uh, by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, right? That governments have a role, they have a job. Now, how they do that job is a question of debate, but they have the obligation to promote life, to promote flourishing, one of the uh, ancient writer, first century, I mean, I'm sorry, second century writers, as he gave his, his apology for, for the Christian life in a world where the government was harassing and persecuting and throwing Christians into, um, <clears throat> into, the, into the Colosseum, right, to fight wild beasts. And, and while they abused them in every way, he said, but, 
but that government still gives us roads that we can go and we can travel on to, to, without fear of death to new cities to proclaim the goodness, right? That, that, that institution, that, that, that work that they do to allows us to hop on a ship in freedom to bring good news to others. So while they are evil, the grace of God has allowed them to not be as evil as they could be. That they, in fact, despite their best efforts, still do good in the world. And so Peter tells us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution because when those institutions do their designed purpose, the world flourishes. When those institutions, when those governments do what they are supposed to do, then the cause of the weak will be defended. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus will be heard, right? And life will be preserved. And so when they do good, we should follow their lead, right? Because by positioning ourselves under them and under their care, we can encourage what is best about them. And while we might not always agree on, on COVID regulations, right? While we might not always agree on stipulations for how and when we gather for worship or, or what kinds of, of laws in churches as institutions should be subjected to, if we position ourselves under them, we can multiply the good. And yes, we can suffer the evil that they bring upon us. You see, Christians' relationship with government, and I don't have all as much time as I would like to develop this, but the Christian vocation of, of listening in government is one where we uh, can be their biggest cheerleaders when they do good, when they seek to preserve life, and when we can be their biggest critic when they do evil, regardless of whether they have an R or a D after their name, because quite honestly, we as Christians don't have time for hashtag not my president. We have to seek the good of our neighbors no matter what election cycle we are in. And so <clears throat> the third reason that Jesus tells us that we can endure, use our freedom to endure suffering from evil people is that the good of the world can be obtained by it but it can only happen if Christians are willing to use their freedom not to assert and be the loudest voice defending themselves, but if they are ready to submit themselves to the good and to suffer the evil of those in authority over us. You see, my childhood uh, vision of freedom of what it meant to just stand up for freedom was, was Patrick Henry standing up and, and declaring, give me liberty or give me death. But what Peter wants us to see, the champion of freedom, the true fighter of freedom is not the one yelling in the town square, but the one who has all the freedom in the world, all the freedom that comes with being God himself, and yet entrust himself to the suffering in this world for your good and for my good. The one who used submission to those whom he created himself so that we might be freed from the powers of tyranny and sin and that we might see the goodness of God's kingdom come to play in our time.
It's Jesus has set us free from the powers of this world. We are able to submit to those in power. Pray with me. God, we pray that you would change our hearts, our hearts that that long to be free um, from any uncomfort, who long to be free from any objection uh, that someone might disagree with us. Lord, that you would give us hearts that are willing to give up our freedom so that we can love and serve our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.